You're listening to the Blissful Hiker Podcast. I'm Allison Young, the solo, female, middle-aged, titanium-reinforced, long-distance backpacker, Blissful Hiker, sharing stories to empower you to learn to hike your own hike, too. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting them through Patreon. There's a link in the show notes or at blissfulhiker.com. This week, I take questions from you for Volume 1 of Ask Me Anything. Like most hikers, I have strong opinions on backpacking topics, although I'm sometimes kind of wishy-washy about gear, about what to take, about what to do. Sometimes I'm very stubborn and certain about them for years, and then I realize I was wrong all along. So I'll give you some answers to your questions, the best questions from this go-around about packing gear, taking care of contact lenses, knowing the flora and fauna of where I'm going, organizing photos, and maybe the hardest question of all, how do you prepare when you have absolutely no experience at all long-distance backpacking? Okay, that's going to be a hard one. So let's start with this one. This is pretty easy, and I have changed my mind over the years, but I'll tell you where I am right now. Maggie D. asked me, how do you secure your bag when you check it at the airport? Well, that's a really good one. Over the years, I've been concerned about checking my backpack at all, mainly because all of those straps on the pack could get tangled and damaged in machinery. And the pack is soft-sided, so your poles and your essential gear are also vulnerable. So what I've done is I've taken to buying a throwaway suitcase at a thrift store and then just pack everything in there and check it worry-free. Nothing's going to get crunched. Of course, this doesn't ensure that my bag will make it to my destination at all. And there's always the problem of what to do with the throwaway bag once I get there. Usually I give it away and people seem to be pretty happy because they're, you know, reasonably decent suitcases if old. Still, it's worked beautifully on so many trips, including internationally, where I often have a lot of connections. So it's just easier to have the bag just going straight through. And so far, I haven't had any lost luggage. There is one tip I have is to take as much as possible on board with you, especially items that could be tricky and expensive to replace, like your tent and sleeping bag, maybe your clothing. I mean, I know you can replace them, but, you know, where and for how much? And is it the weight that you want. And also, I learned this the hard way, never check lithium batteries. They apparently pose a safety risk and have been known to very rarely burst into flames, so they do not want them in the checked luggage. And I forgot this step one time, and TSA confiscated my battery. That made things a little bit difficult when I landed. So Ellen S., and actually a few others asked this question too, and it kind of um, piggybacks on that same one. Do you pack hiking poles on international trips, or do you buy them when you get there? So I'm going to answer that by way of how I managed going one time without checking any bags, or at least trying to. So I was returning home from Jackson, Wyoming. It was just one direct flight back to Minneapolis after walking the Teton Crest Trail, and I carefully cinched up my backpack, planning to carry everything on board. And TSA took one look at the x-ray and they saw the trekking poles, even though they were collapsed inside, and they said, there's no way you can't take them on board. So I ended up having to check the backpack. Uh, Fortunately, nothing was torn off of it or damaged, but it cost me 35 bucks to pay for checked bags. 
So this is the problem. Since 9-11, trying to carry trekking poles on the airplane has been a real challenge. The TSA Transportation Security Administration prohibits hiking poles in carry-on. That's basically what they say, period. But there is a caveat. On their website, they state... The TSA will allow a walking cane or walking sticks and other devices like walking chairs required for personal use and safety on an airplane. So two things need to happen here. I mean, one is that you have to prove that you actually need the hiking poles for personal safety while on the airplane. And then they'd need to be inspected because TSA goes on to say to ensure that prohibited items are not concealed because most hiking poles are hollow inside. So they'd have to inspect them and they'd have to be convinced to allow you to take them on board. Now, this can be a real problem if you have one flight after another. I mean, what are you going to do? Get on one plane and they say okay, and then the next one they say no. Anyway, the final decision does rest with the TSA officer or equivalent in foreign countries on whether an item is allowed through the check point. So this brings me back to my throwaway suitcase. That's mainly why I took it is because of the hiking poles. I didn't want them crunched. And I've checked my hiking poles, my own, through to South Africa, um, South America, Europe, Asia, New Zealand, and I've never had a problem. So depending on where I'm going, it might be possible to purchase walking sticks. But Normally on international flights, there's no charge for checking bags. You're basically paying for that by paying such a high price for your plane ticket. So it doesn't really make much sense to buy new poles when I land. It's better to just check them. And still, of course, you know, your bag may not make it to where you're going. So I always take a fatalistic approach that it might not meet me and then I have to keep moving forward. I mean, maybe I'm somewhere where I have to take a bus or a train to get somewhere and I don't have my gear with me because I'd have to wait an extra day or whatever it is to get my bag. They can't deliver it. Whatever that happens to be, again, I go to tip number one, which is to take as much as possible on board with you if you don't think it's going to be easy or inexpensive to replace things. And maybe the TSA will let you take your polls. Trekking Poles got a lot of questions. Eric J. had a question about using rubber tips on my trekking poles. Well, I don't normally use rubber tips on my hiking poles unless I know that there's going to be a long road walk. And they're really helpful if you have a road walk because you can still use your poles like poles but not feel like you're, you know, digging in or getting kind of that bounce back from the tip hitting the asphalt. And actually, it was interesting. In England and in Scotland, I noticed that hikers there use tips on their hiking poles regularly. I think this is because there's a lot of rock. Sometimes with tips, it's just easier to sort of balance yourself on on rocky places. I don't really know. But I had a hiking partner from England when I threw-hiked the Drakensberg Escarpment in South Africa. And while we were there, they were conducting controlled burns. So we walked through areas that were very hot, and my partner uh, had the tips of his sticks just melt right off on the hot earth. I mean, surprisingly, nothing happened to our shoes, nothing happened to us, but he uh, lost the tips on his poles. On a more sober note, though, my friend, the ultramarathoner Gabe Joyce, had a really serious accident last season. He tripped and landed full force on the business end, on that pokey end of his pole, which punctured an inch and a half into his thigh. 
I mean, he barely survived. He tried to just lay down and stop the bleeding, um, trying to get a rescue. And it was very dangerous. And he said he always now uses the protective tips on his poles um, to avoid having that kind of accident happen again. So you do have to consider that the end of the pole can be really quite sharp. So to be really careful. I'm Allison Young, the Blissful Hiker, and you're listening to Ask Me Anything, Volume 1 on Blissful Hiker Podcast. And I'm here to answer your burning backpacking questions. You can contact me through the show notes. There's a link. Or just go to blissfulhiker.com and contact me anytime. I'm very curious about what your questions are. It gets me thinking about my own gear and about why I do things, which are sometimes a little quirky. And also, sometimes I don't have the answer to those questions. So it opens up a really great discussion. I don't have a great answer for this question from David J. How do you take care of contact lenses on trail? Well, the glib answer is to not wear contact lenses. (laughs) I used to be severely myopic, and I wore contact lenses for years, and I would take them on trips. And it's a real hassle to keep things clean, to keep the contact lens clean enough, to keep your hands clean and keep anything from, you know, getting into your eyeball. So what I did was I got LASIK about a dozen years ago. I mean, it was the best decision I ever made because there's nothing like cowgirl camping and just laying back and being able to see the stars overhead without contact lenses or glasses. But LASIK is definitely not for everyone. It is expensive. So what I would suggest, and this is what I did in the past, too, I wore extended wear lenses. They can be worn continuously for about six to seven days. And um, I guess they last 30 days. You don't want to leave them in 30 days. You still have to take them out. But it's less likely that you'll have trouble with them because you won't be fumbling around without a mirror every single day. In my pre-LASIK days, though, I will warn you, I took an extra pair of contacts with me and two pairs of glasses in case I crunched a pair. I mean, depending on your vision, you need to ask yourself the question, if I had no help at all, no lenses whatsoever, could I walk? Could I get out of here? And that's a really big risk. If you can't, then you need to have backups because, I mean, that's pretty serious. Obviously, you know, it's that whole idea, are we packing our fears? Are we taking, you know, too many backups with us? But to be able to see is probably the most important thing to do. Marianne R. has a really interesting question, and I'm pretty sure I know what she's referring to. She says, how do you know so many bird names, plant names, and tree names as you hike? Well, Marianne, I try to learn as much as I can about the flora and fauna of a place that I'll walk before I get on trail. Now, that being said, I do use free apps that I take with me, PlantNet and the Merlin Bird ID app. That's a really cool app from Cornell Lab. They're both free. Um, The birds is especially cool because you can record the sound of the bird and it identifies it for you. And it also has a whole library that you use offline of bird sounds so you can practice and learn the birds that you're going to hear. When I was on the Superior Hiking Trail last year, I had so many different kinds of birds, especially warblers. I think I identified seven different ones. I'll tell you a quick story that uh, I came to a short spur on the Queen Charlotte track on the Te Araroa in the South Island of New Zealand, and there was a sign that said, this way to a thousand-year-old rimu, a tree. And I mean, it probably was, I don't know, not even a quarter of a mile. And I asked some people that were with me if they wanted to go see it. And they said no, because it was going to slow them down from, you know, their pace. 
And I thought, okay, <laughs> I guess I guess I learned a lot about myself. Pace is not as important to me as thousand-year-old remus. So Marianne had another question about keeping all my pictures straight in my mind and then know what is out there in the woods, the country, the mountains, etc. I will say that early on I learned that the only way to keep track of my experiences as I'm going was to actually write as I go. So I use the Notes app in my iPhone and I jot down thoughts throughout the day, including the flora and the fauna, including the mountains that I'm seeing, which are on my map. And at night in my tent, I'm very disciplined about it. I take those notes and I write a narrative of the day. And I pair that with choosing the best pictures that I've taken from the day, and I place them into a separate folder. I mean, I just simply call it like the blog pictures folder or something like that. So everything's organized for each day for when I get back to it. And the reason I'm so disciplined is because I'm human and I forget what happened, especially like in a long day on a trail. I can't even remember what happened in the morning. And sometimes I look at those notes and say, oh, yeah, I met that person or, oh, yeah, I had that weird river crossing or whatever it was because I'm already on to the next thing. And so Marianne's question is about photographs and about pictures. And I really like to bring everything together and have the pictures tell that story. So to manage my on-trail work, I purchased the largest amount of memory that I could afford. And the reason is because the last thing you want to do is get to a point where you can't put anything more into your phone. You're on trail. You don't have time to delete old pictures. You, you can't deal with that. You just want to take them, go through that day, and kind of organize them. Again, I'm Allison Young. You're listening to the Blissful Hiker podcast, and it is Ask Me Anything, Volume 1. I've gotten some really interesting questions this week. Look forward to your questions. If you'd like to ask me anything about backpacking, get a discussion going, telling me that I'm completely full of it and some of the stuff I've said, you can write me anytime. I've got a link in the show notes or just go to blissfulhiker.com. This last one is the biggest one of all. Frank V. asked, I've got no experience with long-distance hiking. How did you prepare to be sure you will make it? Okay, that's a really great question with a simple answer being by getting experience. So I began backpacking solo in my 20s and for pretty short distances and on trails that had good exit points. My first through hike where I needed to send a resupply box was the John Muir Trail. It was so great. I loved it. But it did help me build up my confidence, and I got a better idea of what I could handle physically as well as how to plan for success because I had that experience. So you can read books. You can look at blogs. You can watch videos. You can do all kinds of things. But really, in the end, you want to start building on your own experience because it's like, oh, they said— you know, that I should be able to do these 10 miles easily. And when you realize, no, you know what, I'm 58 years old. I can't do these 10 miles easily. So, Frank, I've got a couple of rules of thumb for you. Let's start with studying your maps. Study them for elevation gain and loss as well as trail tread. This is going to give you a better idea of how many miles you can realistically walk in a day or over a certain period of time. The next thing is to study average conditions for the area that you're hiking. So someone who's really great at this, I'll refer you to Andrew Skirka. He's got a whole kind of shakedown about looking at that, not only looking at the weather, but also looking at like what the bugs are going to be like that time of year, things like that for rain, for cold, for heat. Um, you want to have the right gear for, um, for the conditions and not too much gear, of course. 
I already mentioned this. Read other trip reports to get an idea of how people managed the hike. And this helps to give you a general idea of how long it's going to take you as well as where you might want to take breaks, where you want to camp, where you can get water, etc. Those kinds of things. Find out what other people did. Another point, and I've mentioned this earlier too, is having a tendency to pack our fears. I mean, taking two pairs of glasses might be considered packing your fears. And that being said, don't expect that you'll be an ultralight hiker the first time out. Ultralight hiking is really expensive and carrying less does require more skills. And again, this is something that you build over time. On trail, once you get there, start with low mileage. This is like the thing I'm the absolute worst at. So I give this advice to you and I give this advice to me. (laughs) You need to get into the rhythm of hiking and get your trail legs. Sometimes people say, I'm only going to hike 10 miles and it's sort of ridiculous. They stop at two in the afternoon and people are passing them, but they feel better as they're going and build up to it rather than push themselves really hard and then have problems as they're moving on. One thing you could do, too, is plan a trip with a friend. Plan that first long-distance hike with somebody. It is difficult to find just the right partner, somebody who wants to go as fast or as slow as you do. But being alone does raise the risk level exponentially, and having a buddy can make things easier, especially on a first trip, and make it more likely to be successful. And maybe the most important thing of all is to remember that successfully completing a hike is only part of the joy. There are factors out of your control, like when I was in Scotland and had horrific rain and flooding. I mean, being flexible and able to change plans, maybe giving up a portion of the trail and simply enjoying as much as you can is really what success is. So success becomes something that's harder to quantify. It's not just reaching the end or making your goal or finishing the trail, but it could also just be a matter of what did I experience and how good were the times that I was on trail. So that's all for this time. That's a lot of questions answered. There's a lot more information at the website. I've got a gear closet with weights and links, plus reviews and other suggestions. Just go to blissfulhiker.com. And as I mentioned, you can send me your burning backpack question. There's a link in the show notes. And I look forward to discussing. You can subscribe to Blissful Hiker wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple to help the show get discovered. Blissful Hikers on Patreon. You can support the show financially as a patron. Find a link to Patreon in the show notes or at blissfulhiker.com. I'll be back on trail soon with more stories, lessons learned, and found sound. Until then, my friends, kia kaha and happy trails. <laughs>